Have you ever wondered why exactly it is that things usually sound better at home than they do on stage, in auditions, or even in lessons? It's easy to chalk it up to nerves or assume that you just have to practice more or get more performance experience. And sure, those things certainly are part of the puzzle, but a lot of times that's not really the true root cause. If you've been confused by the inconsistency of your performances, I put together a free four-minute quiz called the Mental Skills Audit, which will help you pinpoint your mental strengths and weaknesses and figure out what exactly to adjust and tweak in your preparation for more consistently optimal performances. You can take the Mental Skills Audit online at bulletproofmusician.com MSA. That's MSA for Mental Skills Audit. And again, it's 100% free, and it'll take just four minutes to get your results emailed to you as a PDF. This is Noah Kageyama, and you're listening to the Bulletproof Musician Podcast. Every Sunday morning, we'll take a look at a new research-based tip or technique to help you practice more effectively or perform better under pressure. And on the first Sunday of every month, I'll have a guest from the music, sport, or research world who will share their insights on how we can all be a little more awesome in the practice room and on stage. Pianist Leon Fleischer once said something to the effect that playing a note is easy, but playing that note musically is much harder. Which seems related to his teacher Schnabel's remark that Mozart's piano sonatas are, quote, too easy for children and too difficult for adults. My tendency in the practice room was always to prioritize technical accuracy over musical intention, to fixate on intonation, rhythm, and quality of sound first, but largely out of context, without all of the subtle nuances and musical details that I knew were important, but figured I'd save until I had all the basics down first. Of course, in reality, that just meant I delayed working on all the important stuff. So when the day of the concert arrived, and my priorities were inverted to emphasize music over mechanics, predictably, I'd end up with a performance with lots of unexpected and annoying technical inconsistencies scattered throughout. This kind of out-of-context practice, meaning practice which isolates a particular skill and strips away some of the demands and complications of how that skill would need to be performed in competition, is pretty typical in sports as well. Because it simplifies things, and it does help to increase consistency, in practice-type situations at least. But how well do these skills then transfer to competition or performance? A team of Australian researchers recruited 33 junior-level tennis players, all of whom were actively competing in Australian state-level tennis tournaments. Everyone started out with a pretest to get a sense of their serving skills, specifically how fast and how accurate their serves were. The accuracy bit was really important, because, and this might only be interesting to tennis geeks, so humor me for a moment, A 2016 analysis of 25,680 first serves by 151 male players during the Australian Open found that aces were predicted more by accuracy than they were by speed, where serves that were angled more than 5.88 degrees from the returner and less than 6 inches from the service box lines were most likely to result in an ace. Anywho... The pretest had two parts. 
One part was a 45-minute match, which gave the researchers a chance to evaluate each player's true serving ability in the realistic context of a match. The other part of the pretest was not as representative of performance, but it gave researchers a chance to more objectively evaluate the participants' serving skills in isolation. Basically, the researchers just split up the service area of the court into six zones and asked them to hit first and second serves into each zone, with no opponent looking to hit the ball back, as they worked across the court from left to right. Then, twice a week for the next six weeks, the participants practiced hitting first and second serves to each side of the court several times. However, the players didn't all practice in the same exact way. Some of the participants practiced in a way that was not especially representative of a real match, while others practiced serving in a way that included more of the situational match-like elements that could affect one's approach to serving in a real tennis match. For instance, all participants were told to, quote, serve or play like you would in a match, but the serve-only group practiced serving to an empty court with no opponent to hit to. Participants in the serve and return group, on the other hand, served to an opponent whose job was to hit the ball back just like they would in a match. This way, you don't just get feedback about whether your serve is in or out, but you also find out how effective your serve is. Does it result in an ace? Maybe a weak return? Or does your opponent absolutely crush your weak second serve down the line? The third and most realistic practice group was the serve and return plus two shots group. Participants in this group would serve to an opponent who would try to hit the ball back, which the server then had to hit back to them, which the opponent would then hit one last time. This scenario is obviously the most match-like, in that the server is most keenly aware of not just the immediate effect of the serve, but the downstream consequences of how the serve impacts how the point unfolds. Because now, the feedback isn't limited just to whether your opponent can return your serve or not, but the quality of your opponent's return, and whether it's a ball you can then attack or must react defensively to. After six weeks of practice, the participants were tested once again, with another 45-minute match and another series of first and second serves into each of the six service zones. So which type of practice resulted in the biggest improvement? Obviously the most match-like practice, right? Well, the answer's not as straightforward as you might think. Let's look at each group, one at a time. The serve-only group, which served to an empty court and therefore received no feedback on how an opponent might react to their serves, demonstrated very little meaningful change from the pretest to the post-test. They did increase their second serve speed by about three and a half kilometers per hour during match play, but there was no improvement in their placement or use of angles. Likewise, in the serving test, where they simply had to serve to six locations to an empty court, there was no increase in serving speed from before the six weeks of practice to after. I would have thought that serving to an empty court would actually be a good opportunity to experiment more freely with no fear of an opponent taking advantage of a poor serve but the study suggests that this doesn't actually lead to a ton of improvement. The serve and return group, on the other hand, which served against an opponent and therefore got immediate feedback about the effectiveness of each serve, improved the speed of both their first and second serves in match play, 
by 4.2 and 3.7 kilometers per hour, in fact, which was the biggest increase of any group. That said, their approach to practice seemed to result in a greater emphasis on speed over accuracy, as they hit 15% fewer second serves to the extremities of the service box. And on the empty court serving test, though their first serves were significantly faster on the post-test than they were on the pre-test, the speed of their second serves was unchanged. Meanwhile, the serve and return plus two shots group's practice, which most closely resembled the demands of a real tennis match, didn't lead to any meaningful changes to either the speed or placement of their first serves during match play. Meanwhile, their second serves changed quite a bit. Specifically, these participants hit second serves 3% slower, and they not only hit 10% more serves to the extremities of the service boxes, but increased the angle of their serves by 31% as well. In other words, the participants in this group appeared to prioritize accuracy and placement over speed, at least on second serves, where the goal isn't to win the point outright, but make sure the serve is still challenging enough that your opponent can't easily attack and put you on the defensive. The participants in this group were also the only ones to demonstrate a significant increase in the speed of both their first and second serves on the skills test. So why didn't the increased velocity of their serves transfer to match play? The researchers suggest that even though they had the ability to hit the ball harder, it seems that when it came time to serve in a real match, they chose to take a little bit off and focus more on accuracy. Kind of like knowing you can play a passage at quarter note equals 94 in the practice room, but given your tendency to rush under pressure and for things to then snowball, aiming for quarter note equals 91 or 92 on stage, so you're not pushing things quite so close to the edge of your limits. So what are we to make of all this in the context of music? Well, my takeaway is that there's a time and a place for practice that's more representative of performance conditions, and a time and a place for practice that's simplified and less representative of performance conditions. How so? Well, for instance, playing a piece with piano is going to be more representative of performance than practicing with a metronome. So if you show up at a competition, having prioritized the metronome and having played with piano only once, you might have great metronomic rhythm, but no sense of pulse, a narrow range of dynamic contrast, and very little sense of the interplay between your part and that of the piano or the orchestra. But on the flip side, if you have a really attentive and flexible pianist and neglect the metronome entirely, you might end up cheating rhythmically and technically by taking more time than you realize to compensate for the difficulty of some tricky shifts or sections that aren't as securely learned as you think they are. So even though practice that most closely resembles the demands of performance seems like it would always be better than practice that is less representative of performance, that may not always be the case. Instead, I think the reality might be that the level of representativeness that's best for learning depends on what the goal of practice is at that moment and what skill you're trying to develop. But doesn't that just complicate things and make it way more difficult to plan what we should be doing in the practice room from day to day? Yeah, it certainly does, but then again, I think this is also the exact sort of thing that keeps things interesting, too. You can find links to this week's study and other resources like practice hacks and the audition cheat sheet at bulletproofmusician.com blog. 
And if you found the episode helpful, please share it with a friend or practice buddy who you think might also enjoy experimenting with this during the coming week. 